All right, all right. You know, when we think about these first nine chapters of Proverbs, the idea of prerequisites comes to my mind. Do you remember prereqs, prerequisites in college? When I was at Ohio State, the most feared class was Chemistry 243. Yeah, see, it's, look at that. It still, still elicits some moans. I mean, the class was ubiquitous. I don't know if it still is, but the fear of it was widespread. It was like if you were, if you were majoring in physical education, you had to take Chemistry 243. If you were majoring in basket weaving, you had to take Chemistry 243. If you were majoring, you know, in, in communication, you had to take Chemistry 243. And uh, uh, it was all about a prereq. You know, if you decide to enroll at Columbus State for your first two years, Columbus State, I see Sue over here. Sue will help you. She'll tell you the exact classes you need for whatever major you're going to pursue at Ohio State. It's all about the prereqs. Well, obviously, prereqs infer that a certain foundation is needed for higher levels of knowledge. And so it is as well with wisdom. There are prereqs for wisdom, and they are laid out in the first nine chapters. The writer assumes that if you don't grasp prereqs in chapters 1 through 9, the wisdom in Proverbs 10 through 31 will be of no good to you. That's how important these prereqs are. So today, what we're going to learn, our goal today is to learn two of these critical essential prereqs. Remember, wisdom, as we have defined it, is a correct knowledge of the world applied to core relationships. Foremost, of course, which is our relationship with, with God. Last week, uh, Pastor Nick left us off at verse 19 in chapter 1. It was an excellent message. He helped us recognize some of the uh, great work that wisdom does in our life, that it not only leads us to every good path, but... but Wisdom keeps us from making destructive choices. And so that warning mode continues in verse 20. We're going to look at a section, verses 20 through 22, and then we're going to skip down to chapter 2 and look at the first 11 verses. And these sections are parallel. They run alongside of one another. They're contrast highlighting the, the essential prereqs for wisdom. So let's stand, if you would. Let's stand. I'm going to read the scriptures. Again, we'll read 20 to 22, and then chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Verse 20, chapter 1. Out in the open, wisdom calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square. On the top of the wall, she cries out. At the city gate, she makes her speech. How long you who are simple, love your simple ways. How long will you mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? And now, chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver, and search for it as for hidden treasure. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. 
From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless. For he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair and every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you and understanding will guard you. This is God's word. Thanks, thanks be to God. For your outline this morning, you'll see three categories of people in verse 20. And those will be our first three questions. Who, who are the simple? Who are the fools? Who are the mockers? And then in chapter 2, the question is answered, who are the wise? Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us this morning to gain wisdom from him. Father, this morning we come and we first humble ourselves before you. And we tell you, Father, that we do not have it all together. We tell you the condition of our hearts, Father. They need, our hearts are in a place where we need wisdom. We want to learn from you. We want to receive whatever gifts of life and joy and freedom and power and direction that you have for us this morning. Father, we know that clarity gives us insight, gives us power. We know that wisdom, Father, helps us to relate and to love and to see our place in the world and in our families or in the church. It gives us perspective. Father, this morning, may we be in a place where we, our hearts are open to learn. You have already shared your fondness towards us, our, your affection towards us, and you appeal to us, open wide your hearts also. To the one who's opened wide his heart to us, may we open wide our hearts to you. And may we show affection to you today, Father, in the way that we listen to the word, your words to us. The word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Okay. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on Proverbs, provides a separate description of the fool and the simple and the mocker. I'm going to draw on his analysis here. And again, we're going to meet these individuals all throughout our study of Proverbs. So today it will help us to know who they are. So first, the simple. Who are the simple? The Hebrew word for simple comes from a word meaning to seduce or to deceive. We would say to fool someone or to pull the wool over someone's eyes. Following this, the simple person is someone who is gullible or who is easily led. He is naive and unstable. For example, Proverbs 14, 15, the simple believe anything, but the prudent or the wise give thought to their steps. But it isn't that the simple lack or have a personality irregularity. That's not it at all. 
He does not lack intelligence. He is easily misled because of willful irresponsibility. Look at Proverbs 132. It says, it is the waywardness of the simple that kills them. Now this word wayward, let's talk about it for a minute because today when we think about wayward, we think of some young adult running off uh, in the great wild west in order to find themselves. We almost have a positive notion of that word. But here in the scripture, the word is less dreamy. It means following one's own depraved inclinations, following no clear principle of law, unpredictable. You see, the point is, is that his instability and irrationality could be corrected, but he refuses to enroll in the school of wisdom, and he will not accept discipline. Life experiences mean nothing to him. The simple man is going to take center stage in chapter 7, and there we see a man who is aimless, who's drifting, who uh, virtually is inviting temptation and courting disaster. This is the simple man. Second, next, is the fool. And we find this is the most oft-used descriptor in Proverbs 50 times. Now, there are different words to describe who the fool is, two or three different words, but when we translate them into English, they all translate into the word fool. One version of the word describes someone who is dull and obstinate. He assumes he can buy or find wisdom easily. No real search is needed. No painful reflection or self-awareness is necessary. He has no idea of what's required in the patient search for wisdom. He can never imagine himself mistaken. Proverbs 17.10 says, a rebuke impresses a discerning person more than a hundred lashes of fool. His trouble, like the simple man, is not mental deficiency. It is a lack of any moral or spiritual compass. He enjoys his foolishness. Proverbs 26, and I think this is verse 11. Yes, verse, I had to correct it after first service. And don't you love how graphic the scriptures are? And they're very graphic. As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fools repeat their folly. Now let me give you a little window in the life of the Martin family, the Martin household. There are four of us now. Kids are all gone. Louise and me and a dog and a cat. And they've become a little older, so the care required for them takes a little bit more. But all of us with dogs, right, we know this about our furry friends, right? I mean, behind that really playful disposition is someone who, who licks up their own vomit, and at least in our case, if he escapes to the basement, will eat the cat's poop. I mean, they look like they're fun and playful, right? But this is, there's a whole other side to them. A few nights ago, I... In the middle of the night, I heard what sounded like our cat spitting up a hairball, which is a more frequent occasion of late. And um, in the morning, I, I said to myself, you know, I have to make sure that I turn the light on when I wake up so I don't step in it. Well, I forgot to turn the light on, but I didn't step in it because 
There was no evidence of anything. We couldn't find anything. I asked, Louise, did you find that hairball? It's got to be somewhere. It was nowhere. So I thought, oh, wait a minute. Let me go back to what that sounded like. No, it wasn't the cat. It was actually the dog, I think, spitting up. And of course, no evidence would remain, right? Because he licked it up. <sighs> well, it's not only dogs, right? We can't let ourselves off the hook, right? We, we're guilty of repeating our folly, right? As human, human beings, we repeat our own folly. I remember when I was younger, in my early 20s, maybe even late teens, I was golfing over at Wilson Road over here on the west side. Um, I wasn't any good then. I'm actually not any good now either. <laughs> but I was golfing with some older gentlemen that I liked and respected, and, and I felt really nervous and really anxious. And you know what happens when you have anxiety? You know what shuts off? Yeah, your brain shuts off. You stop thinking when you're anxious. And so I had one particular shot where I hit the ball. Um, actually, I think it was in the fairway. But they had sprinklers running that morning. And my ball was in direct line of a sprinkler. And so when I went up to hit, of course, I, I couldn't hit. There was water splashing on my ball. So I asked the other gentleman if I could pick my ball up and move. They said, of course. Well, I moved it, and I set up for my next shot. And in, just as I was going back, the the rotating sprinkler caught up to me. And I'm not, I don't think I'm exaggerating. Maybe I am. I, I, it's hard to remember. But I think that I moved that ball in the same direction of the rotation three or four times before I really realized what was going on. And I think my friends had a good laugh on my expense. I was repeating my folly. Well, more seriously, another version of this word fool conveys stupidity and stubbornness, to be frank. And this word is actually a little darker. This, the fool is actually impatient with all advice. No one can offer a different way. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool seems, seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. Proverbs 15, 5. A fool spurns a parent's discipline, but whoever heeds correction shows prudence or wisdom. So that's the fool. Lastly, there is the mocker, or sometimes your Bible version will say scoffer. Who is the mocker? He shows up about 17 times, almost always in direct contrast to the wise. His presence makes it clear, and I like the way Kidner said it, the presence of the mocker makes it clear that the ment it is mental attitude, not mental capacity, that classifies the man or the woman. The mocker, like the others, can't stand correction. Proverbs 9, 7, and 8. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. You want to be insulted this week? Just correct a mocker. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. And the damage that is caused by the mocker is far deeper. Proverbs 21:14 The proud and arrogant mocker is their name they behave with insolent fury and 22:10 Drive out the mocker and out goes strife quarrels and insults are ended So we have this category all in verse 10 we'll meet them throughout the book of Proverbs uh, the simple the fool and the mocker 
Now Solomon, in a plea to his son, goes on to say that these three types of individuals will face sudden disaster. It will come on them without warning, like a storm, like a whirlwind. They will call out in desperation to Lady Wisdom to save them, not from change of heart, but out of self-preservation. And in verse 28 of chapter 1, it says, Lady Wisdom will not answer them. And in verse 29, we have Lady Wisdom's reasoning for her silence. It says, since they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Again, the, 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 the important word here is choose. Their simplicity, their gullibility, was the result of a choice not to store up wisdom so that they were unprepared when disaster hit. Okay, so all of this background now leads us to dive into the question, who is the wise person? Solomon has set us up to take a closer look. Now, look in your Bibles or devices, and beginning in chapter 2, Solomon makes a series of if-then propositions. If you do this, then this will happen. First, look at in verses 1 through 4. In verse 1, he says, if you accept my words. Verse 3, if you call out for insight. Verse 4, if you look for wisdom as for silver. Focus just on the verbs in this section. Accept. Store up. I love that, that picture. Turn your ear. Call out. Cry aloud. Look for it. Search for it. This is not going and buying wisdom at a five and ten dime store. Right? All of this points to a vigilant and transparent search for wisdom. The beginning, uh, I'm sorry, then, the then part of the proposition, if then, begins in verse 5. Verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. Verse 9, then you will understand what is right and just and fair and every good path. Verses 5 through 11 reveal the reward for the person involved in such a wholehearted search. Verse 6, verse 6 says the Lord gives wisdom. It's a revelation. Verse 10 says wisdom will enter your heart. Knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. You'll see the beauty of wisdom, power of wisdom. And you'll want it more. That's the kind of the uh, irony of it. It satisfies, but you want more of it. You see, this person, regardless of natural intelligence or advanced degrees or temperament or birth order or spiritual gift or whatever else you want to say is required for wisdom to fulfill the prereqs, it is this person with this mentality that becomes the wise person. The prerequisites bubble to the surface. They are self-evident. We don't need a theology degree to discern them. Especially when we hold them up in contrast to the first three people, categories of people that we met. Here are the two prerequisites for wisdom. 
The wise person, number one, is they see the infinite value. They see the infinite worth of wisdom and are willing to chase it to the end of the universe. And secondly, they admit that their hearts need cultivated or shaped for wisdom. Friends, no one likes being called simple or naive or ignorant. I mean, we, I think, like, call me a sinner, and that's, you know, I can live with that. But man, nobody likes being called simple or ignorant or naive. And yet the wise person grasps that without the grace of God, that is the natural condition of their heart. Our hearts are like the untamed wild on which nothing can grow. Now, you might like the untamed wild in your romantic imagination. Yes, but you can't live on your romantic imagination. You will starve. For things to grow, the ground must be ripped apart and dug into and turned over and cultivated, or the seed will never take root. This is what must happen to our hearts if we're to be wise. They must be shaped and cultivated and broken up, so to speak, in order to receive wisdom. John Kitchen said, no one left to himself ever arrives at wisdom. The Proverbs say it this way, Proverbs 4, verse 7, the beginning of wisdom is this. Where's its beginning? Get wisdom. <laughs> Do you understand what it's saying? It's saying the beginning of wisdom is recognize you need it. Recognize you don't have it. That's the beginning of wisdom. And here's, here's the paradox of wisdom. Some have pointed this out. Wisdom is both received, but it's also something that we must work on and work out. It is both a pursuit, verses 1 through 4, and a gift, verses 6 through 7. But friends, as long as I insist, as long as you insist that we've got to do it by ourselves, or we've got to do it our own way, or if we act like we've risen above others, or if we delude ourselves into thinking that we're the smartest person in the room, then wisdom will always escape us. Growth will stop, and, and truth will become an extension of our own biases. I, I love the challenge of this verse. It has challenged me so many times. Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than him. Even the fool can change. But the person who is blind to his own arrogance will remain perpetually blind. There is no cure. So, by virtue of non-example and by virtue of example, we get an understanding of the prereqs for wisdom. Let's go now here. Let's take a pivot Let's move to our application. and How can we apply what we're learning here? And there absolutely is so much we could say by way of application. And some of this will overlap with what Pastor Nick shared last week. And I, I, I think, you, you know, um, Jesus captured the same feel of these verses. And I think it's Luke 8, 18, when he said, Be careful how you listen. How you listen to God's word in any and every setting. 
really, actually, how you're listening right now. I mean, the attitude by which you're listening right now, the attitude by which you're buying in or not buying in right now, reveals something about our pathway to wisdom. And indeed, how we listen to correction from others reveals our heart condition. You know, as a pastor uh, in some 30 years and working in multiple uh, ministry and relational settings, I've been a father for 30 plus years. I've been a husband for 34. I mean, really, I don't think I could even begin to count how many times I have been corrected. I wouldn't even want to begin to try to count um, how many times, sometimes it's small things, sometimes it's larger things, sometimes it's character things, sometimes it's ministry things, sometimes it's simply a challenge to a perspective, um, and on and on it goes. But I want to share one thing that I've learned. One thing that I've learned is that no matter who the correction comes from, no matter how young, no matter how old, whether it's a good motive or a questionable motive, Christian or non-Christian, there is something I can learn every time. Now, I'm not suggesting that we open our heart fully to every person who comes into our path and criticizes us. Nor am I suggesting that they are automatically correct in their assessment if they criticize me. And that we should receive what they say without reflection or without prayer. I'm only saying that every time a person has held a mirror up to me and said, this is who you are, this is what I see, every time that's happened, I've been able to learn something that has been helpful to me. And the way that we receive criticism, the way that we handle criticism, is a key part of our journey towards wisdom and really Christ-likeness for that matter. Just recently, I received a very practical, very concrete, gentle, indeed, correction from one of my sons. And yes, undoubtedly, there or a variety of father-son dynamics woven in that. But there was wisdom there. And I could receive it, and there was something for me to grow in as I seek to serve and to love more effectively and support more effectively. So there's certainly lots of applications here that we'll, we'll likely return to these uh, in one form or another, particularly as we go through the first nine chapters. But today, for our primary application, I want to draw a life lesson from the Old Testament. This will be our final story. It's a story of Hezekiah. And it's a very brief chapter, the last chapter of his life. Go ahead and turn there. Isaiah 39. In a moment, I'm going to read the chapter. And let me set up the background as you're turning there. Hezekiah was a good king. He was serving in the southern kingdom of Judah around 700 B.C. He was a great king, actually. A shining exception in the long list of Judah's bad kings. And part of why he shined so brightly is because of who he followed. 
His father, Ahaz, was one of the worst of Judah's kings. Under Ahaz, for example, Judah became subservient to Assyria, something the prophets counseled against. Under Ahaz, they began the horrible practice of their pagan neighbors, child sacrifice. Ahaz, on a visit to the capital of Assyria at one time, was so dazzled by the, by the altar in their pagan temple that he telephoned his priest and said, hey, go into that temple and make a pattern of that altar and rebuild it. And when you get back to Jerusalem, replace that with the altar in our own temple. Can you imagine that? I mean, this is a, not even a... Uh, fair analogy, but it would be something like you coming to church next week and the cross here would be taken down and replacing it would be a symbol from some different religion. When Hezekiah became king, he ended all that. He purified the temple. He ended the drive-through places of worship where the people made their convenient sacrifices. He restored Jerusalem as a center of worship. In the beginning, anyway, he ended the vassal relationship with Assyria. 2 Kings 18.6 says, there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. Now, this is a great king, and yet that's not the end of the story. At a later point, Hezekiah prayed for deliverance against Assyria. For they had broken a treaty, and they were coming to Judea, and they had already uh, attacked and captured about three dozen fortified cities, and now they had come to Jerusalem and surrounded it to begin a siege. And Hezekiah, it's a beautiful, powerful prayer. He prays to God, and that night, Isaiah sends him a message and says, you will be delivered. And that night... God supernaturally destroyed the Assyrian army of 180,000. I mean, if that wasn't enough, later Hezekiah became terribly sick, and he was not an old man. Scholars think when he became sick, he might have been around 39 years old. And he was so sick that Isaiah came to him and said, Hezekiah, you're going to die. Get your papers and your things in order for your death. Hezekiah was so stricken that he tur- says he turned on his, bre- his bed, he faced the wall, and again, another powerful, beautiful prayer. He prays for healing, and what happens? God heals him and gives him another 15 years of life. And so we get to chapter 39, and this is the last incident we know of his life. And the expectation that has been building, if this were an uh, American biography, we would expect, right, the, like, the, like, like the, the best is yet to come, right? That kind of thing, like a, like a cl- climatic ending to his life. Let's see what happens. Chapter 39, verse 1. At that time... Marduk Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in the storehouses. There was nothing in his house 
nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, this is like almost Columbo-like, what did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, they have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Friends, typically when a prophet says something like that, like what comes next is not good. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall become, they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. What in the world do we do with this? How do we evaluate this? What has just happened here? The, the, the writer is not explicit in his condemnation, but the writer's silence invites us to reflect on Hezekiah's actions. And I think that the damning piece of it is Isaiah's prophecy. And, and indeed, what Hezekiah says at the end, it appears, it appears that Hezekiah wanted to impress his envoys. He wanted to impress them with his vast stores of wealth. I remember one time, long, long ago, when I was working in real estate, and I was doing land development. I thought it was really cool. Like, I thought, this is really cool to do land development and to, you know, find farmland and find, find which land can be produced into developments and can be turned around for, you know, vast profits. I, I thought, I got this impressive knowledge. And so I found myself in a conversation one day with this gentleman who um, uh, I began to tell him about this and began to give to him all how my impressive knowledge about this. And he kept asking me questions, like really specific questions. And he said, somewhere along the line, he said, well, he said I, I do a little land development too. And all this research that I had learned about these farms that could be developed, he kept asking me about. So I went back, and just like Hezekiah just told Isaiah everything, I told my boss everything. Oh, yeah, I met this guy in this town, and he does a little land development, and, and I told him this and that, and he just looked at me like, you did what? And I said, oh, his name was Jeff. I said, Jeff, he'll never buy it. Do you know what happened? The prime piece of land that we were looking at, this guy bought. That's what's going on here, I think. Isaiah, Hezekiah is trying to impress these envoys. He's been seduced by these envoys. This is the same man who stared down a Syrian invasion, and now he melts in the face of Babylonian flattery. He reveals the full extent of his wealth. Nothing was withheld, thus inviting Babylon. Just come and take it. Remember in the Bible that Babylon represents more than an ancient culture. The ESV study Bible, I like how it says it. It came, Babylon came to symbolize everything in the world that is humanly impressive, but is opposed to God. Listen, Hezekiah knew this. 
He knew or he had known that Judah's future belonged to the kings in the line of David. When told of the future deportation, including his own family, some of who will be eunuchs serving in a foreign court, they're not having sons anytime soon. To this he could only reply, I'm glad it's not happening to me. Israel's future and God's purposes were intertwined through that kingship. Hezekiah knew that at one point. And that line of David would climax in the coming of the Messiah. Hezekiah seems to have lost touch with all that. Even after all he experienced, the things he did, the miracles he experienced, yet in this instant, he was so he was misled so easily, so bedazzled by the impressive envoys, emblematic of a worldly or temporal success, he became the simple man. Going back to our definitions, at the end of his life, he became the simple man. What is the lesson here? For me and for all of us, the lesson is we never graduate from needing wisdom. The warning of naivety is not only an admonition for the young. We can stray from the path of wisdom at any season of life. The early season, the middle season, our you know, third base heading home. We can stray. We still need to be drenched in God's word. We still need the company of other wise people in the church family. We still need the proven wisdom of spiritual fathers and mothers in order to find every good path. And so whether our challenges are doctrinal, or cultural, or relational, or in business, or in our career, it doesn't matter. The prereqs for wisdom are the same. Again, who are the wise? Number one, they see the infinite value of wisdom and are willing to chase it to the end of the universe. And secondly, they see it. They admit, they admit that their hearts constantly need cultivated and shaped for wisdom. Well, we don't want to end on that note, and nor does Isaiah. Because even in Hezekiah's failure, there is a glimmer of hope. Hezekiah's failure at the end of his life served to reinforce a painful lesson that the Jews had experienced again and again, and that is that no human king will ever be our Savior. Wasn't David? Wasn't Solomon? Wasn't Hezekiah? As a matter of fact, the next chapter in Isaiah chapter 40, it marks a distinctive shift in Isaiah's writing. Matter of fact, it's so distinctive, the scholars really struggle with trying to discern, with, did a different person write this? It's like a hairpin turn, but it certainly is Isaiah. And he shifts his attention away from Hezekiah's failure to the coming Messiah. And nowhere else, it seems, in the Old Testament literature, do we get a more beautiful and powerful rendering and picturing of the character and the person of the coming Messiah. Messiah, who was Jesus, the perfect king that we have always longed for and desired, who will never disappoint. Indeed, Isaiah has already spoken of him 
saying that the government shall rest upon his shoulders, but now in chapters 40 through 66, Jesus will come into clearer focus as a centerpiece of all of human history. You know, the search for wisdom is ultimately the search for Jesus. The wisdom here in Proverbs is certainly concrete, practical, relational wisdom, but yet it still is a shadow. It's a type of the wisdom to come that was fulfilled in a person, the person of Jesus. He is our wisdom, and he is the one with whom we must be in a all-out, wholehearted chase of, because he is of infinite worth and value. And therefore, we should pursue him and seek after him as if we were after a hidden treasure. My friends, if I told you there was a $10 million buried in ABC Field, I mean, you would work at it every weekend until you found that treasure. You would not give up. Jesus is worth far more than that. Through a relationship with him, you can find relational peace, reconciled to God, reconciled to others. You can understand the dynamics of what makes core relationships work. And as I said earlier, that wisdom, paradoxically, it both satisfies us and yet in its beauty impels us to want more. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, Father, thank you. Thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit who has been with us all morning long. Thank you for all those who have been able to connect with us online. And I trust, Father, that as the word, as your words are proclaimed, that even in those living rooms, in those places where people are watching, there the Spirit is imparting life. There the Spirit is imparting gifts. There the Spirit is imparting power. Power to turn knowledge into wisdom. Wisdom that empowers us to live life, to have a correct knowledge of the world, to have a correct view of how relationships work and how to thrive in every facet of our lives. Father, thank you that that is your will for our lives, that we would thrive in every facet. Thank you that's the fruit, Father, of stored up wisdom. And I pray that this engagement with your word would both satisfy us at a certain level. We'd see the beauty of Christ and be satisfied, and yet we'd be impelled to want more of him and to expect in our hearts. We might have an expectancy in our hearts that he will reveal more of himself to us. We're anxious, Lord, for that. We're eager for that. And so we entrust now this moment, this week, to you as we walk out of this room, I hope and pray a little wiser, a little more committed to this pathway to walk the journey of wisdom. In Christ's name, for Christ's glory, and for our good, we pray.
Amen. 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 Okay, I'm just going to give actually just a few announcements here before we break up this morning. Of course, thank you for being here. Thanks for those that are online. And I, I trust that you've benefited this morning from, from God's Word and the, the power of it. A couple of things by way of announcement. Let me just grab my paperwork here. I'm going to say goodbye to you online for a moment. And say hi to you again online. All right. Um, okay. A couple of things here just for next week. So read the end of Proverbs chapter 2. You'll see there that there's a couple benefits of wisdom. And one is to, to protect you from falsehood or false teaching or, 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 or falsehoods. Again, it's very similar to what Nick shared in Proverbs 1. And then at the end of Proverbs 2, you'll see that wisdom protects you from sexual sin. We're not going to cover that next week. We'll actually have a couple of opportunities in chapter 5 and chapter 7 to return to that and take on those, those subjects. So Nick will start next week at the beginning of chapter 3. That's where we'll pick things up next week. Um, uh, again, offering-wise, uh, you, you can uh, give online uh, to support the ministry of our church, both here and around the world. And uh, our, there's a couple of places in our lobby that you can also give. Tomorrow night, leaders, we have our January leadership huddle. I encourage all of you to come. Uh, we sent an email out Thursday with the details. Uh, we'll meet here in the sanctuary from 7 to 8. Uh, we'll create space here through music and through worship to create an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to you, to, for the Holy Spirit to minister to you and for you to minister to one another. So that will be from 7 to 8. And then from 8 to 9, we're going to begin a series of, uh, of leadership messages from the book of 2 Corinthians. And I'm calling that Jars of Clay Leadership after that uh, famous verse, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, that really reveals the heart of how Paul led. It was a leadership that was others-focused, that was life-giving, and Christ-glorifying. So that'll be tomorrow night from 7 to 9. Uh, again, remember fellowship time. Please mask up uh, while you're inside. And that's it. Let's go ahead and stand for a final blessing and benediction. May the Lord help to abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight that we may be able to discern what is best and be blameless and righteous before him when we see him on that day. And may we be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God. Amen. 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 Go in peace.